Hello guys and welcome to Breakdown the Wall podcast with myself James Kane. This week I am joined by Philip Mitchell from the Chris Mitchell Foundation. Philip, thanks very much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thanks for inviting James. No worries. Philip, tell me a little bit about the Chris Mitchell Foundation and the work that you do then. If I can go back to the, the very start, uh, how it all came about, the, the foundation was set up because of my son, who was a professional footballer. He died, uh, he retired from professional football through serious injury back in January 2016, and that three months, uh, his mental health deteriorated. He was missing football, and although there was support there, it wasn't obvious and apparent and his mental health deteriorated over that three months and he took his own life at the beginning of May that year. Obviously, we were devastated. In that two weeks that leading up to his funeral, we had his colleagues, friends, professional colleagues from football, people from football coming to the house and what have you. And, you know, we were dumbstruck. And we were, how do we find ourselves in this position? And we were asking them, is there anything in football, in professional football, for you to seek support if you're having troubles with uh, with poor mental health? And the majority, if not all of them, said, we don't know if there's anything out there. We don't know of anything that's out there. Although there was something there, they weren't aware of it. So that wasn't good enough. So it was my daughter who was the driving force behind it. She says, well, we'll have to do something to help other people within football because Christopher had a lot of friends in football and we would hate to see it happening to anybody but particularly one of his close friends as well. So it was a year later, it was in March 2017 we got the, the foundation, we got registered as a charity in Scotland, we got up and running and this is what we do, we, we, we help people in all levels of football now. When we started out, it was mostly professional football, the male and female football, but um, we've expanded into all levels of football, right down to grassroots. I, I remember getting the, the phone call from uh, Bob MacArthur, and it was actually, I was speaking to Laura via Twitter, and, and she, she was mentioning it and stuff like that, and I, I was, I mean, I was taken aback by it every Every year, uh, it pops up on sort of my social media and stuff like that about Chris, um, his anniversary. So I can only start to imagine the sort of the things that you, that you and your, your family and things that I were going through at the time, and obviously the, the friends that he was close to at the time. So over the years, I've kind of a, I've I've kept an eye on the Chris Mitchell Foundation, uh, and, and there is obviously a lot of a good work that goes on. So what did you start with, and, and where are you now then in terms of growing over the last X amount of years? Well, we were very fortunate because we were jumping in right at the deep end. We had never been involved in charities before. We'd never experienced mental health uh, issues personally or in the family until Christopher. It happened to Christopher, so we were right at the deep end, as I say, uh, seeking help. And it was very fortunate we spoke to three individuals spoke to one individual, they put us on another one and it was through these three individuals we ended up speaking to the SPFL Trust 
and we also spoke to Mark Fleming. He was doing a mental health first aid course. So after our conversations and what have you, uh, the three of us got together, the Chris Mitchell Foundation, SPFL Trust, and Mark Fleming, who runs Positive Mental Health Scotland, we got all together and we were delivering these mental health first aid training programmes. We were funding it, the SPFL Trust were administering it and Mark was delivering it. And that was to all the professional clubs in Scotland, both genders, uh, the Highland League and the Lowland Leagues. And we had a fantastic pick-up on that. People trained in all the professional clubs and uh, all the, the Highland League and Lowland League clubs and the, prof- and the women's professional leagues as well. And we've put it out there to other people for all levels of football junior right down to, to, to grassroots. People who are involved in taking a club. When we started off, it was professional clubs, you know, and... I would imagine Scottish professional football is a small industry, you know, everybody knows everybody else sort of thing. And people who are suffering poor mental health, it's still a stigma, it's still a stigma. Although a lot of people, although we're now talking about it now, there's more people talking about it and the awareness is becoming more highlighted as well now. So we're putting it out there for anybody in these clubs to come on to the course. It was a two-day accredited course and it, tra- it covered all aspects of mental health. And what we were doing was that, you know, it's there's help out there and people are wanting to support people with poor mental health, but it's that individual with poor mental health that has to make the first step, you know. Uh, and that is the... the the crux of the matter and people just won't do it because it's seen as a weakness uh, and all the, the negativity that surrounded poor mental health. So what we do, we train up these people, as I say, over a two-day course, and they're not experts, they're not going to cure people, but they're in the club and they can see the signs of people who maybe have a, a dip in their their mental health because they're with them every day in the professional environment or most or most days of the week anyway and they then have the knowledge and the confidence to go to that person especially turned around 180 degrees so the people are in the clubs and they can approach someone if they think they've got poor mental health and they can put them on acting as a conduit and putting them onto the right road for professional help or they might not need professional help. They just might need a wee chat or something or just somebody to say, look, you're not yourself. Because I sit and watch, I sit and think about it all the time about Christopher. And I wonder if Christopher knew they had, they had mental health problems, you know? I, I, I wonder that if that's a thing that's, although three months isn't a short period of uh, is a short period of time in one sense, but you know it creeps or it crept up in him and crept up in him, and he just maybe did they realise that his mental health was declining. He just thought, well, I don't know, maybe he did know, maybe he didn't. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because if it's the first thing that happens to you, do you know really if it's your mental, if it's 
you can identify it as poor mental health. I don't know. I think I think you're right, Philip. But I mean, taking like Chris for an example, straight out of school, straight into full time professional football, and and then when the time comes, whether it's at the end of the career, like, i.e., like mid thirties or, or late thirties, or if like Christopher, your your career's cut short due to gender injuries and stuff like that, I think cutting your career shorter due to injuries will be a lot more tougher. But as you say, it's like they can have all the help in the world, but that first step is is the bravest step, I think. Um, and obviously, it's as you said, it's. You can't force people to have that, to make that step, but certainly what you guys have done is by training people to, to notice these different um, different steps or notice people that are acting differently and stuff like that and encouraging people. That's certainly something that, as I said, whenever I looked at the Chris Mitchell Foundation over the years, I think it was one of the things that you kind of were hoping for at the start was to have somebody within every professional club in Scotland to have that mental health training or the mental health awareness that you were doing and obviously he's well over done that as well. Right at the start then, okay, or even now what what is the long term aim for the foundation? What I want to do is it's my daughter we've got five trustees but it's my daughter and well, it's my daughter, she's the driving force behind them. she's got a young family and what have you, you know, and we have to get on with life as well, and we're on this from the kitchen table, you know, it's not fancy offices or nothing, anything like that. And it does take up a lot of your time. It does It does take up a lot of your time, and it has an impact on family life. What we will achieve, <laughs> what we will achieve eventually, is we're on a, an advisory group now with SFA. They're introducing mental health into all levels of uh, football, which is... A positive thing. That's a good thing. Hopefully, it'll be. It won't be a talking shop, and action will be better than words. So we're on that, and what we want to, what our aim is at, or try to achieve is to have a professional person associated with mental health in every professional club, like a club doctor or a physio or what have you but a professional person uh, in every professional club in Scotland, male and female, and it's a requirement of the club's licence that they have that individual because mental health is just as important as physical health. Yeah, and see exactly what you said there. I think see something like that is achieved, that will make massive strides in, as you said, breaking down the stigma. Uh, my last podcast I done with Tony O'Neill, the, the owner of Anamelia Apparel, he actually spoke about it and he put it in quite a good context where he spoke about like when you speak about like footballers, right? Like the the, the, the physical preparation, the, the, the preparation before a game and then the rehabilitation after a game to prolong their career. And and he spoke about something he does as well like with his mental um uh, sort of mental well being and stuff like that. It's not just about physical well being, although he's not a sports person or anything for that. He speaks. He spoke really openly, and the things that he does is he prepares mentally for anything that's coming up, and then it's like about his rehabilitation after that as well, so that he keeps himself both physically and mentally well. And I think exactly what he says there. You've always got your your doctor. Um, you've always got your physiotherapist. Nowadays, you've got your sports scientists. 
I think once you guys achieve that aim, and as you say, you will achieve it because I think it would make massive strides of having a mental professional within the football clubs. Then, as I said, it will make massive, it will make massive strides, and it will help break down that stigma. It makes them more professional, James. It makes them more professional. You know, mm. uh, I mean, if somebody gets injured, a serious injury in the pitch, the trainer will be on. Uh, the club doctor will be on, then they get carted off on a stretcher into an ambulance, into casualty, triaged, uh, a, a registrar, then maybe a surgeon, or he or she will go under a surgeon's knife, then there's rehabilitation over a certain months or whatever, uh, and all these professionals, physios, dietitians, uh, they're all involved getting this person back to. 100% physical fitness to get them back on that park and over that period it could be a dozen people or more professional people that are involved with that individual to get them back onto the football park in full physical fitness but if someday a football club maybe years gone by it's maybe a bit better now I don't actually know individual clubs but I could believe the scenario at some clubs if somebody went to somebody and says I've got poor mental health they would turn around they wouldn't know what to do they wouldn't know what to do but there's a bank of people there for their physical health but there's nothing or very little or people don't know where to go in respect of mental health so it's just getting these two things together because as we know, it's getting that person out there on a Saturday or for three points or to win a cup tie. And football, it comes down to the my on occasions, the minute, it comes down winning or losing. And you could be 100% physically fit, but you can just wander away just for a second or so, you know, because you're not fully mentally fit and it can cost a game. And I don't, I don't see why clubs are not taking that um, serious. Because if you can get an individual who's 100% physically fit and 100% mentally fit to go out and perform, you can't do any more. You can't do any more. Yeah, because even uh, even like you hear you hear the coaches and managers talking about the winning mentality of certain players, the winning mentality of certain teams. And all that sort of stuff. And years gone past, I would always hear um, certain managers and coaches speaking about you've got to be mentally strong on the park, especially professional level. You've got to be mentally strong on the park to deal with the abuse you're going to get from away fans and things like that. And it's it's crazy to think when you when you think about the way it's been discussed. Nobody's ever actually thought to themselves, how do we get these these athletes mentally? To the peak of their careers, you know, it's it's such a simple idea, but as you guys, as you, you're pretty much explaining there, to put that thing in place is obviously proving a bit more difficult than what it is. And you would think with a sport like not a sport like football, but an industry like football, with the amount of financial backing in there, it would be so it should it should be so simple to do, but obviously there's there's obviously barriers there in place and things like that for you guys. People and organisations have got their own agendas and they 
want to look at the way they are and they don't like to uh, other people coming in and stepping on their toes. They don't. We've got it. We do it our way and that's the way it is. And they won't listen to better ideas or any ideas or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's rather uh, narrow-minded that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's in, sorry, that's in the, the higher echelons of Scottish football. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I've got friends at <laughs> that work. In the, your face <laughs> I've got friends at work within that sort of part of the football and um, dinosaurs is a term that is used well. mostly. Um, so, Phil, no, no, listen, totally agree. So, that's obviously all in football. Do you guys have any plans in branching out to other sort of sports or even other industries outside of, outside of sport? Um. No, James, as I say, we've got our own lives to get on with. We're doing this. We've got an aim that was explained to you that professional mental health and professional clubs in Scotland, and when we do achieve that, we will have achieved our goal and we will put our feet up, we'll see, because it's a huge, it's a huge, huge commitment. Huge commitment, uh, and hopefully it won't be too long for this to be achieved. Uh, if it could be within the next five years, is a long, long time. But I can see that being the time span. Yeah, I mean, when you think when you think about it, I mean, five years is a long time, and it's obviously it's five years this year since since Chris died, four yeah. years this year since obviously the the, the foundation um, started off. So. I think what you guys have achieved in that, and I would say that's a short space of time, is incredible. Because as I said, I go back to the point earlier on that I made that, like you guys have now made sure that there are every professional club within the, the sort of within Scotland does have that uh, at least one person, like mentally health trained or, or or the mental health awareness training that you, you guys do the two day course, and um, I mean I looked at it, sort of some of the content. I've done something similar with one of my previous employers and stuff like that as well, and it is quite similar. And when I when I completed the course, and funnily enough, it was it was actually the year after I think um, Chris died, and I wanted to do it for that reason because I, I knew that there is people out there struggling, and it's just identifying how what what changes are has gone through their minds and what changes has happened to them in the last period of time that, that could impact in their life and it's see what you said earlier on as well is not everybody requires professional help some people just need a, an ear just to kind of just to listen just for 40 minutes an hour just to shoot the breeze whatever it may be um one of my other podcasts with chris ferry he touched on it as well he's a gym owner and he's had people stay behind after classes just to talk and, and it's nine o'clock at night and he wants to go home to his family but he's that person within the, the sort of their community that is able to listen, and, and if he wasn't able to listen, that person that, that, that needs to listen to could potentially go and do something that they might not want to do. Um, so no, I, I totally get it. What do you do for your own mental well-being then, Philip? Well, there's um, if I can go the family, if if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife. She went for counselling, but it took a long time, well, it 
took a long time to get into the, the programme, uh, the NHS programme. My daughter, she went on the NHS counselling as well. And it's the same with my, my wife. She stopped it because Brenda, she didn't think that it was benefiting her, really. It was more, it was building her anxiety instead of uh, doing her good. Laura, she went through it, but she was on medication after Christopher's death. And maybe I shouldn't be I'm speaking at a turn here. I don't know, but hey-ho. And I think she'll be on it the rest of her days because when she started when she was pregnant, her mental health was going downhill. So she's got, she's on that. She's finished her counselling. She's on her medication. I have, I didn't fancy the counselling. Uh, I didn't do that. And what I do is my daughter's got a black lab. She got a black lab shortly after Christopher died. Christopher, he got a black lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going off the mark here, sorry. No, I remember, uh, I remember seeing him on Facebook. He was absolutely, he was all over Facebook with it. He was absolutely in love with it. Well, you knew before I did, then. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. Because <laughs> he went down to Manchester to, or down to North England, anyway, him and Louise, they picked this. Uh, Black leg pop up and they had it on his lap coming back up the road, and that was the first time we knew that he's had this lap. So, anyway, he had his black lab uh, for the last six months of his life, and then my daughter got a black lab. And I walk her, I get her a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and any time in between as and when required. And we just go out walking up into the countryside, walk the streets. Walk up to the graveyard at Bannyburn where Christopher is for hours on end and just think about things. And that's what I do for math therapy. Uh Where if if it helps or not, I don't know. I don't don't know. I don't know how to put this, if it is helping me or not, because. I don't know, but that's my way of dealing with things. Yeah. I ask myself all the questions that day Christopher died, it goes round and round in my my head every day. Uh, and I ask myself the questions, and I ask myself questions in the lead up to the three months to Christopher's death when he finished football. And I get different answers on occasions, or most occasions, and, and I try and reflect on memories so I can keep the memories in my head and his voice as well because that's a very important thing so that's how I deal with it yeah I think when you when you think about um, sort of coping mechanisms as I like to call them exactly what you're, you're saying right you don't know that it's a coping mechanism for you until probably three or four years down the line and you look back and you say that did work or you'll look back and say that didn't work you know it's just one of those things it's almost like trial and error i find some of my own coping mechanisms i'm like you philip i like to go out walks and if truth be told the last sort of five or six weeks i've hardly been out of walk and i can almost feel myself getting a wee bit kind of stressed out with work and, and, and things like that as well and um, as i say when i went up that walk yesterday in tinto hill with my wee boy and my, and my missus 
even though I had to drag them up and I wasn't myself like I usually like to be, it was actually really good just to get out in, in a bit of fresh air. So, yeah. um, But I've, I've only realised that because I've tried so many different things and I could just look back after several months or years of trying and it just never worked. And if I finally found this one wee thing, so that, that certainly, as, as I said, it's trial and error with, with these coping mechanisms, definitely. See, in terms of um, the, the, the foundation then, is there any way that MD can get involved in things like that? I've seen recently that, is it is playing High School or doing a, a sort of challenge during Easter holidays? Yeah. So is it, just, is it just local people that are involved um, or is, is there MD that can get involved? The, no, anybody can get involved. Um, we don't. We do. We do a lot of school work. We get invited into schools to tell Christopher's story in bits and pieces. Uh, we do that. Um, I wouldn't ask anybody to get involved in that. But it's all about fundraising. It's all about money to to uh, keep the the mental health. Uh, Awareness going, and we've also got uh, talking therapy um, available to people as well, um, so counselling sort of thing. So that's the two main things, and these all cost money. Uh, one course for sixteen people's a thousand pounds a course. So you know, um, fundraising is what keeps us going, and uh, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And fundraising is from uh, the people that, that help us out are fantastic. People cycling the length of Britain, climbing hills, climbing mountains, uh, walking f- football stadiums, um, everything and anything that can raise money. The people are fantastic. The public are fantastic in doing these things to, to fund what we do. Do you get a feeling of that there's there's a stigma attached when you start speaking about mental health, even within the high schools, or would you say that because the reason where I'm going with this Philip is like when I look back and when in my time in high school, everybody starts speaking about mental health stuff, people would start a snigger and laugh that immaturity and stuff like that. But if somebody was to come in and tell you a real life story like that, you you would sit up and listen and probably grow up at that sort of time. Is that still there within high schools, do you think? The, I have to say, the schools that... Well, Dumblain High School is Christopher's old school, uh, and they're very uh, responsive to us, and the pupils as well. We try and keep it to fourth, fifth and sixth years just because of the, the story and, and how it all develops and ends and what have you. And you can't... You have to tell what happened, you know, uh, that's, that's part of Christopher's life, so we have to tell that, and it is a bit detailed, yeah, and horrific, um, so we try and keep it to the, the more adult, let's say, the, the pupils, fourth, fifth and sixth years. We have t- uh, spoke to first year pupils, but that was... As you say, that was a problem. That was the, the mobile phones clattering on the floor and, you know, and people having to get eyeballed by teachers and all what have you in bits and pieces. So that was, uh, that does happen, yeah. But we are well received and well respected, all in all. We are. When we're at the schools and 
this is what I think of when I'm out walking with, with, with a dog and whatever, you know, um, all these mental health issues and policies and everything going through my head. Where do we get our knowledge of mental health from? You get it from listening to your parents or something, or listening to your pals in the, in the park and whatever, when you're young and at school. Then you go into the working environment and you listen to people there and it's all negative and it's all a laugh and I carry on and oh he's daft and the daft will pull up your socks, so there's nothing wrong with you and uh, all these it's all negative, it's all negative and that is our learning of mental health. This is where we pick up our mental health knowledge and it's all that and it's all negative. And that's just self it's perpetuating generation after generation, and that's been going on for, it must be going on for certainly decades, decades, of, if not hundreds of years, because of the asylums and all what have you. If you had poor mental health, you ended up in there, and everybody in there was a laughing stock, no matter what their uh, mental capabilities and what have you. So that's, why, that's how mental health still looked as, as a weakness, there's a stigma about it, and all these things, and it's all negative, negativity uh, running about uh, mental health. So, if the schools had to put something into their curriculum, and I know, I mean, the curriculum's chock-a-block as it is at the minute, and with COVID and everything, things are getting even worse in regarding kids' education and what have you. But if they had to have an awareness, just an awareness of mental health and the high school uh, curriculum, whatever year, I don't know, maybe third year or whatever, uh, onwards, just a couple of hours or something or whatever, just to give them the basics of mental health, then that would send them off on a positive path as instead of picking up all the old adages and whatever over the years and years and falling into the negativity of mental health. So that was that's what I've been thinking when I'm out walking in bits and pieces. <laughs> no, see, see the thing is, Philip, you're absolutely right and things that you're saying there resonate with me. So even when you're talking about the workplace, so uh, I've just finished my I was doing a, a management training, um SMSTS course it is it's called and it's fifth day was today, and over the last sort of five weeks, we've done over Mondays, uh, the trainers openly admitted that this year is the second year, so last year was the first year where mental well-being was actually sort of discussed on a safety management training course, which for me, I've, I found it quite, wow, it was like, seriously, like, that's that's just not good enough, so what you're basically saying is, that there's been no management training or official management training for like the certain industry, it was the construction industry. Um so that's just been part and parcel of the world effectively. Um so for me that is that's a big step in change as well. It's like see when you go back to as well what you're saying about even the school, a couple of hours a week or a couple of hours a month. When I look back in school there is certain things and I'm pretty sure some people have the same opinion is I've not used Pythagoras' theorem in my life. However, 
I would have much rather learned about how to deal with uh, my mental health, how to make sure that I've got um, a real positive outlook in life and my mental well-being and stuff like that was strong, or even how to identify any of my friends or my peers or, or my family, any changes in, in their, their behaviour that would maybe lead on to some sort of mental health issues and things like that. I would much rather have spent, as you say, an hour a week or a couple of hours a month, whatever it may be, then learning French. I've never been to France in my life. I don't go to French. I don't go to French restaurants. So there's there's certain things that I think that oh the curriculum is it's fully loaded just now. Um, but we go back to that word dinosaur. I, f- I think the school curriculum is probably still the same as when I was at school. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like how how do we move the, with the times? And I think as I, as I say, to go back to this. It's like the things that you guys are doing with uh, Chrissy's foundation is making a difference, certainly within football, and if you continue doing the stuff with the schools and stuff like that, then it is only going to improve, and that's obviously what we're trying to do in the long term. Philip, that is all the questions I have for you. As I said, the, the sort of, I've, I've looked at the Chris Mitchell Foundation, you can you can find it on Twitter, yeah? Yep. Yep. You can find it on Twitter. Um, you've obviously got your website as well, which is which is really really good. A lot of um, good knowledge stuff on there. You can obviously look at the courses content and stuff like that as well. So, thanks very much for coming on. I really do appreciate your time uh, tonight. You're you're more than welcome, James. The um, if I can just say that uh, our courses are getting delivered via Zoom now. I'm not. 100% with IT and whatever but that's, I'm sure it is and they're, they're coming round thick and fast so if anybody affiliated with a team if they go onto the SPFL Trust uh, website and they can put their name in and see if they can get onto a course, we fully fund them so you have to sit in your bed if you wish at this moment in time <laughs> and uh, learn about mental health awareness because it is it is saving people's lives. That is without a shadow of a doubt. No, that's great. It's great. Thank you, Philip. Thanks for your time. Good man, James. Thanks again.